You are listening to an MLGA Network podcast. This is Maddie of the Voluntary Vixens Podcast, joined as usual and newly recovered, or I I should say actively recovering still, is my lovely co-host, Jessie. Hello. (laughs) Jessie, how'd you survive the bubonic plague? Um, With some ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, prednisone, all the stuff that they try to tell you not to take. Wait, you mean like animal drugs? Yeah, I took horse medicine and it oh, made me better. Man. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of animals, we've got some fun friends from the north. Um, anybody listening who caught our episode with Joanna Zermack a couple months ago, um, I can't believe it's been so long. Um, she is joined once again, but this time with her wonderful partner and... What I didn't realize until Joanna kind of like took us on the longest, most adorable like story and meet cute. I didn't know you two were a couple, but um, Professor uh, Pierre de Rocher. Hi. <laughs> Here I am, and I promise to meander anytime uh, Jesse and Mary let me. So yes. <laughs> we're happy so to be that. meandering hosts and guides. Um, <clears throat> for you two, for anybody listening. And so, well, I guess, um, you know, here we are in August. I know you two just made a big move. And then like, since you're both um, in, you know, respective uh, academic roles, I know the school year is coming up quickly. Um, if not, if it hasn't already started for you two, right? No, in Canada, it's a bit later. We begin in the first week of September. Oh, uh, wow. A lot, of, a lot of American universities begin around this time. So late August. So, uh, yeah, no, you know, the summers are so short here that uh, we want to take advantage of them a tiny bit. So, yes, it's uh, mm-hmm. September is when the, the it's when the back to work period. Is yes, but, but because of everything we've been doing, uh, we're both behind on our work. <laughs> so here's here's Pierre with his syllabi, um, let's say, begging for attention and screaming <laughs> like hungry children, feed us new things. So then I'm behind on so many things. I don't want to tell you. There's another book. I'm I'm writing something about narrative for librarians in teaching, and I'm I'm putting in as many subversive twists as I possibly can. Um. So those those who are interested in that, it might come out in the late late fall if I actually meet my deadline this time. I don't know, but there'll be stuff about narrative referring to Jordan Peterson. Oh no, the anti oh, no. devil all in <laughs> one, right? And our colleague. <laughs> But we actually mm-hmm. never met. So mm-hmm. UFT is a big place. You know, we have almost 70,000 students. So uh, you don't get to meet everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that is fairly large. But um, that does answer a question. I was figuring that um, if anybody, if you know, had the chance to maybe uh, meet him, um, it wouldn't be us. It might be you guys. But 
Well, we knew of him before he was famous, and we were mm -hmm. supposed to uh, meet him actually before, like a year before, but he couldn't attend the meeting, and so uh, yeah, we missed our chance to know him yeah. before he got famous. Well, we did <laughs> see him speak, though we did see him speak, but that was already in the early days of his fame. So that was when he was starting to draw crowds. Uh, that was that was fascinating. We even took our yeah. team to I see him. And I probably shouldn't be saying that, but uh, I have one thing in common with him. I ran into the same administrator who caused him a lot of problems. Yeah. So, uh, but I'm not sure I want to divulge all that much, but that's one thing yeah. I do share with him. So, <laughs> Well, um, so I guess like if we could at least uh, touch on this subject, I know that a lot of our listeners are mostly American based, but we do have some foreign listeners in various countries. Like I know, for example, someone that has reached out to us and he lives in Ireland. I'm like, well, that's awesome. <laughs> um, and so things are not great up in Canada, uh, as far as I understand. No, they're pretty bad. As you know, the, we, we have provinces instead of states. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, unlike uh, the U.S., perhaps Joanna might disagree with me, but the worst, the equivalent of governors, we call them premiers here, the worst ones have actually been the conservatives one, not the liberal or the, the socialist ones. And as a French Canadian, my take on that is that you know, English Canadian as conservatives, they're really Tories. They're not really like classical liberals. So yeah. a lot of them have something of an authoritarian streak yeah. to them. And mm -hmm. in Ontario, Manitoba and Alberta, things were pretty bad for a while. And in Quebec, the culture is different, but uh, it's pretty much like France, a very top-down society as far as these things are concerned. So it, it hasn't been much better. Well, it's not as bad as Australia, though. We have well, to say yeah. that it's uh, nothing <sighs> as bad as Australia and New Zealand. But we do have to say that one thing that's very clear on our side is that there is absolutely no popular opposition to vaccination mandates and to uh, vaccination passports. Um, nobody seems to think that there might be issues, um, beginning with discrimination, equity, and racism, because we've seen, and just as just as in New York City, very few mm -hmm. people of color are vaccinated. The similar um, issues uh, are visible in many areas in Canada. In fact, where we live, um, we we don't live in Toronto itself. It's it's a region. Um, to the west called Peel, and it's extremely industrial, and it also has the bulk of logistics and packaging industry. So these are people who support manufacturing and food distribution throughout Canada, actually, um, definitely all of Ontario. So many frontline workers here are the logistics workers. Uh, they're too busy. They're honestly too busy to, to get vaccinated if they wish to. And they also work in environments where they end up catching COVID um, almost um, necessarily. I mean, they're there for hours very often in, in poorly ventilated places, working closely with others. So yeah, we have, we have quite a number of people who, um, well, first of all, we have people who have recovered. Uh, they're not going to be treated differently. They will be also told to either get vaccinated or in some cases lose their job. So we, we definitely have that problem. And just over the last week, this started, this started about a week and a half ago. I know because one of uh, my um, work duties is uh, uh, curating a newsletter with mm -hmm. COVID news. So it's both um, local news that comes from the government and various other arms of <clears throat> officialdom. Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, we also uh, we also have uh, research. So uh, tracking what's been happening for the newsletter, I can tell you that most uh, universities, starting about a week and a half ago, 
um, passed vaccination mandates on campus. So if anybody wishes to be on campus, they do have to provide by now proof of uh, vaccination. There is a little bit of a timeline. Some universities uh, require it early in September. Others um, require it by the middle or end of October to have both shots completed, but it's definitely a requirement if one wishes to be on campus and engage in any face-to-face -face activity, even though, of course, everybody's still required to wear masks <laughs> indoors, um, mm -hmm. these documents have to be presented, right? So universe universities started. Um, along the same time as univers universities started creating these mandates, um, <clears throat> the province passed um, a, an essential um, healthcare worker uh, act that also um, mandated vaccinations in hospitals and for paramedics. Um, and then it started cascading from there. So by now we've got a number of banks who have uh, done the same things. Um, so we have um, a lot of private businesses or so-called private businesses, essentially a large corporatic <clears throat> um, um, uh, uh, creations or, or uh, conglomerates also mandating vaccination. And, and there's, uh, there's really very little to differentiate these uh, institutions from these uh, large government uh, bodies. And the problem is that so much of, uh, of our economy here is really uh, one way or another an arm of the government. So what, what we see in so many places with, uh, with for example, um, with Google, with uh, with the, um, the technology companies, we have that throughout Ontario. The government's basically everywhere. Anyway, I'll I'll let. Um, I think Pierre looks like he wants something. Like he wants to add something <laughs> to this. But this is the picture. So the picture is mandates are everywhere, and not only are people generally not objecting, but in many places. Uh, people are expecting the government to take care of them this way because they think it's the right thing. And in fact, because then it will yeah, be Armageddon, like apparently yeah, it is exactly. in Florida and Texas, where people are dying why, on the street. Why don't you say what? what <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you heard the, what's what's the uh, reaction there? Nah, forget Quebec. Hmm. It's just talk radio here is as alarmist as you would think it is. But it's mm -hmm. uh, it's funny because we do follow news from the U.S. We don't get a sense that. Uh, Florida and Texas are, you know, um, falling apart, but out here. Right. But just two two more weeks and then they'll be just dead yes. everywhere. <laughs> just wait oh, yeah. two weeks. Yeah. So, yes, uh, no matter how bad you're having it down there, right, it's probably worse up here. No, I know. Anyway, well, you've been talking about COVID a lot. So yeah, yeah, and I, I could talk a lot more about COVID. I really don't want to get started on no, COVID. No, no, no. I don't think we should. No, no, honestly, because this is, it's really not our specialty. So again, somebody who curates the news is definitely not somebody who creates the news, but I do mm -hmm. get to see a lot of it. And we see the reactions, both of us see the reactions. And really what is, what is the most shocking is, um, how people want more restrictions. A colleague of mine, for example, they love it. Yeah, they go. Yeah, she she ends up sending me pieces of news saying, "Oh no, look, our so-called uh, well, our, our government, which she uh, considers corrupt for very different reasons than we <laughs> consider corrupt, because of course, to her, they're listening to their cronies, the the business leaders. Oh, they've been paid off um, uh, by by the housing industry and by this industry. So of course, they're in the they're sitting in the pocket of this and that large financial lobby. So the lobby is pressuring them not to um, force mandates everywhere. Well, the mandates are already everywhere. Um, the government has had very little to say about mandates in um, 
in the private sector, and they followed. In some cases, they've been, they've been requested by both employees and people using that part of, of and the economy for weeks. So, yeah, anyway. All I will say is that, you know, growing up in uh, French-Canadian secessionist household, the way we tended to view English-Canadian was to say, well, these are the people who said no to liberty, and that's why they moved up here. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what do you expect from English-Canadian? But I really should not say things like that. <laughs> Why not? I mean, yes, Ontario and and even parts of Quebec and the Eastern Townships were started by United Empire loyalists. That's that's people fleeing the formation of the United States. People saying, "Uh oh, none of that. It makes so much sense now. Like, I don't think I knew that as an American. I don't think I knew that part of history that um, some of the Tories or the loyalists fled uh, north instead of, you know, maybe just going back home or just accepting um, that they're going to live a more free life and not under a king. Ah, well, there's always Canada. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's why they're polite. They're polite because they're compliant. And I'm uh, so they because I came here as, a, as, a, as an almost grown-up immigrant, right? I was a teen, and I didn't have much to say about it, but I've tried to understand it, and it still mystifies me. I mean, I grew up under communism, so anytime you have to give up any amount of freedom that is extremely difficult to get and even harder to maintain, uh, to me, that's anathema. I see that happening, and I go, no, 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 that's just the beginning, that that part will go next. <laughs> nobody listens, nobody realizes that. And even when I told Pierre last, last actually, I told him in, was it April, um, May of uh, 2020, I said, this is looking really bad. I think um, essentially martial law is next. They're taking away our freedoms. If you can't leave your house or if you can't go anywhere without producing documents and they're starting to divide you into essential and non-essential, that's it. And of course, I was like, poor little thing, you suffered too much under martial law in Warsaw. <laughs> up here, right? But yeah. What well, do I know? What yeah, do right? I know? I mean, it, it was predicted. And um, yeah. sadly, like we've been right. It's it's not a fun time or a fun subject to be right about things. And um, but I guess as a really super corny transition of something that's a lot more positive, I think, and not totally unrelated, um, because I think what we're all experiencing is to some degree some kind of like spiritual, like metaphysical, like emotional war. And obviously, like, it's all, like, being played out in the physical realm, and we're we're stuck here in that physical realm, and it's, uh, you know, very uh, tense and trying and exhausting, um, even on the easiest days. But, so I think, like, this is kind of being driven, and I, Jesse and I have always sort of seen it as, like, a very anti-human, mm-hmm. um, like, attack. And, you know, it's kind of like the Malthusians, like it's just the misanthropes and they've always hated people. Like they don't care about us. They're, you know, they convince well, they people. They like to call themselves ecocentrists. So it's just that we're not different from any other life form, you know. <laughs> so it puts them, uh, it gives them a better perspective. Otherwise, we're just, uh, sorry if I speak like an academic, but uh, <laughs> what can I say? Uh, otherwise, they're just selfish anthropocentrists. Or increasingly these days, they like to talk about human supremacy, which mm. is obviously a bad thing. So, yes. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like if like if beavers, yeah. if beavers had the wherewithal to be 
uh, you know, think of themselves as the most important, I'm, you know, on some like survival, basic, primal, primitive level, that is what they're thinking. They don't care what's happening to their neighbor, the toad, or like they don't care about the fish. They just want to eat them like chew trees. I don't know what beavers eat, honestly, but it's not, <laughs> that's not my job either. And maybe that's human supremacist in me to not know what beavers eat, but so I think like it's all related. And so before this year, we were focused like the current the crisis of the day was uh, once again, climate. And um, you two and even Jesse, like you're all older than me uh, and you've probably had your fair share of uh, whiplash from climate change and chi- climate crisis from one thing to another. And so I know that um, like where I met Joanna is I, I met you there as well that day. And it was because um we were, you know, God bless the Mises Institute and the fact that they put on a conference in Canada. And I had a cousin up there and we were like, why not? Let's just spend a Saturday listening to people talk about economics because that's what normal 20-something kids do. But, um, yeah, no, I was, I, like, as I gushed to Joanna last time, like, I was totally blown away and so encouraged by your your research. Um, like, b- what both of you kind of were able to do and put forth together, but... It was really something that I wish more people actually knew. And um, because there's so many people like maybe not this year exactly, but um, it was more prevalent last year uh, or maybe two years ago when um, Greta Thunberg was the uh, <laughs> the midget of the moment. And now it's, you know, Fauci. But um, <laughs> so Greta is over 18 at this point, I imagine. So. She's, no longer, she's no longer cute and protected by her childlike status. Yes, yeah. that, poor, that poor abused child. Well, anyway, so um, I don't know. I kind of want to want to be able to ask, um, you know, Pierre, from your knowledge and standpoint and your research, you know, things aren't as bad technically as um, the alarmists might want us us to see or feel. And that's the thing. I mean, that's, uh, I got into that topic, oh boy, I'm going to date myself, but I got into that into the early 1990s when I discovered the work of a fellow named uh, Julian Simon. Mm-hmm. Who, I mean, uh, some libertarians still remember him today, but he died uh, in 1998, I believe. But uh, I came across his, uh, his books uh, in the mid-1990s and I was sold on the idea that, yes, the official data shows that we're getting better. And, uh, yeah, a few years later. So I got into that before Beyond Lombard, but he became way more famous than me. But, uh, but To be fair, I, like, I don't know who that is, and I know who you are. Okay. <laughs> well, okay, but you're not difficult. But the bottom line was that I went back <laughs> to the original sources, too, and I said, well, isn't it funny that there's more of us, we're wealthier, we're living longer lives. And yet you cannot deny that the air is getting cleaner, the water is getting cleaner, uh, forests are making a comeback in all advanced economies, but also in places like Vietnam, Bangladesh, China. And it's sort of, and Simon was very good at documenting that. And he was a man who was uh, working on too many topics for his own good, and he never really could push <laughs> the theory of that, how that came along. Uh, as well as you would have done, I guess, if you had lived uh, a couple more decades. But I was like, okay, well, I think I can fill that gap. So for the last 20 years, I've been digging up in uh, technology and environmental history phenomenon that might explain how we can have our cake and eat it too. Mm-hmm. And so 
the standard answer that libertarians will tell you is that yes, there's human creativity. Ultimately, you know, we're different than other animals. Uh, we can trade, but what I thought a lot of economists were lacking was really a theory of human creativity and technological change. And also there is this lack of appreciation that a key factor that explains why uh, there can be more of us in a greener planet are those much maligned fossil fuels or mineral resources because what humanity has been doing in the last <laughs> century is essentially replacing uh, resources that we used to harvest from the surface of the planet. You know, everything from whale oil to trees to uh, growing plants to make dyes or medicine or what have you. And instead, extracting stuff from below the ground, at first gold and petroleum and natural gas, creating synthetic product. And that uh, substitution, which, you know, if you think about it for five seconds, you're like, yeah, well, that's true, obviously. That might explain why there are more trees than before. So that's one thing I've written a fair amount about. I mean, it was actually more on the better understood a century ago when these things were happening, then it was sort of lost. Then another topic uh, that I've written about is, uh, well, there's, there's, if I'm too academic, stop me, but nah, there, keep going. <laughs> there is this great push now by the United Nations and uh, other organizations to design green industrial policy where they, should, where they say, well, businesses should develop what is called a circular economy where the waste of one business becomes a valuable input of another. That way you can grow your economy and you, know, you, just, you release less stuff in the environment. But, you know, guess what? That's what business has been doing for two centuries in any capitalist system. They never <laughs> needed, uh, you know, some UN bureaucrat to tell them that, you know, sending stuff through the smokestack or in the river is actually wasting potential resources. And so one of my key contributions to has been to document how business has always sort of closed the loop on waste. So how can there be more of us? How can we be wealthier? Well, uh, obviously, human creativity, we uh, develop uh, new ways of achieving uh, what we were doing before. We develop new things to do. But this big substitution from resources from the surface to below and business spontaneously closing the loop on what to be uh, waste and pollution. And I think that goes a long way in explaining why the Malthusians have always been wrong. Because ultimately, if you ask us, like any other animal species, you know, we're just a bigger plague of locusts. The more of us there are, the more we consume, therefore the more we consume, the more we destroy. But humans ultimately are different for a number of reasons. First of all, we trade physical goods, no other species does that. Uh, we trade things over long distances. And we have developed this innate creative ability to mm -hmm. uh, create new things by combining existing uh, things in new ways. So the more we invent, the more we can invent. So anyway, that's a lot for <laughs> me to Well, no, but, but you see this really, uh, cues up really well a set of articles that we finally got published. So when um, when you saw us, uh, what was it, two, three years ago at, at that Mises uh, Institute? Ages ago, it feels um, like. Our presentation yeah, was specifically, exactly, definitely, well, it's, it's not <laughs> COVID, I think it was even before. I think, was it, had we published the book yet? Or was it before? Uh, it might have been like 2017, if that helps. Yeah, that makes sense because the book came out in 2018. So yeah, that would make sense. So not only is the book talking very much about what uh, Pierre just summarized, but uh, um, what, what you saw us present that day was the early work that led to two articles that appeared earlier this year in Social Science Quarterly. Now, the point of these articles was to describe 
um, a counter wager that um, was uh, issued by uh, the famous or infamous Paul Ehrlich, mm -hmm. um, still alive, by the way, and still telling us that oh, we geez. are definitely going to so the fill in the hand bomber, basket. Yes, like yes, yes, so yes, he, yes. He, yeah. in, in 1968, um, 68, 68, yeah. I always think it was, <clears throat> but it was 68, that great year. So in that <laughs> year of 1968, he wrote um, uh, The Population Bomb, uh, a little booklet that was pulled together from his class notes, actually, that his wife uh, polished uh, into readable shape. Now, she doesn't even get the credit on the book because oh. uh, I guess the editor said... What a misogynist. <laughs> well, you know, but... Uh, Ehrlich is actually not to blame. He always yeah, said it was yeah, the publisher. Yeah. I wanted mm -hmm. to... So every time we like to mention that yeah. he did not write mm -hmm. it alone. So. Because he wrote a number of things with his wife where she's credited. I mean, it's clear mm -hmm. that they share the worldview. So, so yeah, this time it was simply because they wanted so badly to popularize this booklet. They thought, well, she's not a professor. Um, she, she's not as famous as he is. He was for a while. He was on every show, right? He was on Johnny Carson, what, 10, 11 times? 20 he was something. 20 something. Okay. See, I lost track at some point. The point is he was the rock star of the day. He was, he was the spokesperson. He was bigger than Fauci. Okay. He was oh, wow. <laughs> oh God. And his message <laughs> was very similar. If you, if you don't listen to us, if you don't do what we tell you, um, Earth is going to be destroyed by your wanton desires, by your, your consumption, but your, by your desire to essentially uh, eat through this planet like locusts, right? So, so you have to, the, the first big message so, was you have to breed less. <coughs> so for a younger audience, Ehrlich is really the inspiration behind Thanos, if that tells you anything. So. Oh, okay. So. Mm. And, and the drive to control population led him and yep. his wife to write the population bomb. So in any case, he and Simon, so Julian Simon, uh, the wonderful, uh, let's say, could we call him, was, was he really a libertarian or is it simply that his, his principles aligned so clearly with libertarian? No, he was a libertarian. He, he, was, he, became, yeah, so, he yeah. became a libertarian. So yeah. yeah, because he started out in the same camp as Ehrlich, by the way, but he had mm. an epiphany, actually a beautiful mm. epiphany. We, don't, we want to talk to tell about his epiphany, but before, before that, let's just, <laughs> let's just get to the point of the articles. So there was a bet. Uh, that uh, Simon and Ehrlich had uh, that Simon won and and the articles that we published earlier in the year uh, show that uh, the counter offer that Ehrlich and some collaborators and then including Schneider um, had uh, offered to uh, to uh, Simon was rejected by Simon for some very sound reasons that we described, but we still followed the 15 parts of this counter bet to actually see what would happen had Simon taken Ehrlich and Schneider up and uh, uh, what would happen to the bet. So anyway, uh, you want to talk about Simon's uh, uh, road to Damascus moment? It's such a beautiful thing, though, because he was. I want to hear about that. There. Yeah, it's okay. a really good story. It sounds, it honestly, moment. it sounds like it's a hopeful moment. Like, you know, there's um, people that you think can't wake up, but they wake okay. up. So. Well, the, the, the funny thing with uh, Simon and Ehrlich is that they're both Jewish kids from Newark, New Jersey, who were born at about the same time. But, but I don't know. Apparently, uh, Ehrlich was not very athletic when they were young, so I don't know if they ever played baseball against each other. But mm. uh, from then on, their paths uh, differed. So Ehrlich became enamored with butterflies when he was a kid. And, you know, the halls of academias were always open to him. And then on the side, he developed this interest in population. Mm -hmm. uh, because everybody was doing it at the time. Uh, Simon went the road, the road of the business school. His expertise was marketing. And at first, 
uh, what Joanna was saying is that he sort of got bored with what he was doing and he decided, well, there is this overpopulation <laughs> crisis. I can help market population control policy. Oh my gosh. But the more you look, yeah. So, but then you looked at the number, it was like it doesn't work. And then one day he's in Washington, uh, D.C. to go to a USAID meeting to promote population control. And he sort of drives by the Iwo Jima Memorial. And uh, Simon was not a rich kid. So the way he went through Harvard was through uh, an ROTC, so Reserve Trading of Reserve Officer Training Corps, as, your, uh, as most of your listeners mm -hmm. will know. And so he spent a couple, of, uh, a couple of years in the Navy. And one day a chaplain mentioned about uh, the tragedy of Iwo Jima, you know, how many Mozart dies there, how many Beethoven, or just people who could have brought uh, something good to the world. And he's like, well, what am I doing? How am I any, any different than Japanese shooting at uh, U.S. Marines? Uh, how am I making the world a better place? And so from there, you know, his worldview unraveled and he realized, well, no, if you look at the numbers, the more of us there are and the more freedom there is, uh, the better off uh, the world is. So as uh, Joanna was mentioning, uh, but the problem is that nobody wants to listen to him. <laughs> but being a marketing guy, he has this idea of uh, proposing a bet uh, to uh, Ehrlich, saying basically put up or shut up. And eventually, well, Ehrlich so takes the bait. And uh, Simon offers incredibly generous terms to Ehrlich. And turns out he's right. He's won. Uh, he won. Uh, Ehrlich does not really want to admit. He said he just got, Simon just got lucky. This doesn't prove anything. And I will give you a better, I will give you a second bet that, that are about things that really matter. And if you don't take it, you're a coward. And so he comes up with all sorts <laughs> of indicators that are completely irrelevant. Uh, for example, one of his indicators is to say, well, there will be less fertile cropland per person in 2004 than in 1984. Which, you know, is, is a truism because uh, the more people there are, obviously the earth is not getting any bigger. So there will be less cropland uh, per people. But does that matter? Because look at what we do. We live in an extension of the American Midwest here. Southern Ontario is kind of like the northern extension of the Corn Belt. Well, it turns out that in the last century, uh, we, the yields of corn in Ontario and most of the Midwest have been multiplied by six. So we produce six times more corn on the same piece of land today than was the case a century ago. So what then if there is less cropland available per people? I mean, we just produce, because of uh, new knowledge, new technologies, we produce a lot more food on a lot less land. And then he has other things. He says, well, for example, there'll be on average less rice and wheat grown per person in 2002, 2004, you average the three years, than in 1992, 1994 which turns out to be true for one and not for the other, but it's not because there is less food per people. It's because we're better at producing food and people are moving away from hydrocarbohydrates towards other types of food. Mm -hmm. So it's not because we produce less meat per people that we're worse off. So he comes up with a series of indicators like this. Are there others you want to discuss? The sperm yeah. count or No, what? but this one's really good because you see, it doesn't, once again, here's Ehrlich's bias, right? His bias is so anti-human. Instead of considering what would be better for people than, let's say, eating a bowl of rice, um, would choice be better? Would people be able at some point to decide instead of eating rice, I would like to diversify and eat uh, some soy and some 
um, let's say meat and then you know whatever Fruits, would, yes exactly or let's say I would like to eat golden rice instead of plain rice so maybe there's more golden rice being uh, cultivated instead of regular mm -hmm. rice right or maybe in some areas people have discovered do you know what quinoa has a lot more protein right mm -hmm. per per gram and yeah. because I really want to build up my uh, protein um, level in the body, I want to make sure I'm, I'm not getting anemic, I'm going to eat uh, uh, golden rice and quinoa plus whatever other proteins I can get, let's say soy and then mung beans and whatnot. So the, the, the point is, instead of considering what is actually better for people, how can people flourish better? And um, instead of thinking about yields and efficiency, he came up with these indicators that are, uh, that are almost bound to show a negative trend because of how they were chosen. And of course, Simon looked at this and said, ah, wait a minute, um, there is just no way to gain these because regardless of what will happen in the next several decades, there will be more people, there will be less land, but it's irrelevant, right? So the, mm -hmm. so, um, so the indicators are irrelevant. There's another really fantastic one that, that sounds, um, that you look at it and you go, oh, oh, wait a minute. Uh, it's uh, it's number 13, no, it's number 14, uh, and it goes like this. Between 1994 and 2004, sperm counts of human males will continue to decline, and reproductive disorders will continue to increase. <clears throat> oh, what, wait a minute. Uh, you'd ask yourself, okay, so is Ehrlich asking this because he wants fewer people, or is he asking this as a proxy for um, irredeemable environmental problems, right? So what is, what is actually going on? So, mm. so Simon's point there was none of these indicators are actually clearly really related to overall human wealth, mm -hmm. right? And each of them, you know, a lot of them you look at and you think, what's he trying to measure? Is it even measurable? And is that measurement directly related to overall holistic human well-being, right? And by the way, the sperm count story is really fantastic and it shows such a, such a Western bias because um, just about all the sperm count studies, and um, there are a number of experts looking at this, but um, there's one in, in particular, um, uh, Shauna Swan um, has led a number of really, uh, very uh, groundbreaking reviews. In, in fact, some of them may have been even systematic reviews of, on the topic. And most of the studies come from the developed world. So we're looking at studies from France. We're looking at studies from um, the Sweden and other Northern, Northern European countries. There are some from Australia. There are some from um, North America, uh, but there are very few sperm count studies from the then developing and let's say uh, the now developing world, right? Because a lot of studies come from, um, uh, they yeah. started coming out in, in about the 90s and 2000s. So the point is that um, we're looking at an area of the world that's maybe 25 to 33% of total human population. Whereas the bulk of the human population has not been studied. So we actually do not see, if you, if you look at all the studies, it, there is a decline um, in uh, sperm mobility um, in some cases large, in some cases discernible, but you know, let's say just above experimental error in a lot of the Western countries. Yes, that's absolutely true. But first of all, we don't truly know the causes yet. And second, it is not well studied. And also in cases where it is studied, it, do, it is not mirrored in the developing world, right? So here we see Ehrlich presumably applying a trend that's only visible in part of the developing world to the entire world 
and making what kind of a point that maybe there are going to be fewer people in the future because because people are are uh, because sperm show less mobility well then he should be happy so again um, hmm. indicators all over the place is there another one we could discuss that's really interesting uh well the uh, ocean fisheries for oh yeah example. that's a good one so uh, the argument was, again, there'll be uh, less catch per capita because, again, there are more people and uh, the idea here would be that we're emptying the ocean. Mm-hmm. But the fact is that, uh, no, there is actually more fish available than before because we've developed aquaculture and most of the fish that we now eat is no longer caught at sea. But, uh, you know, if you go into the fish section of your supermarket, you'll see a lot of it is uh, tilapia or a lot of it is... Uh, various other products that are raised in uh, New Zealand or Prince Edward mm-hmm. Island or what have you. So uh, there is more fish and seafood available than ever before. It's more affordable than before, but it's not being caught at sea anymore. It's just like, you know, we devastated mm-hmm. wild animals to develop farming. Well, uh, we've done the same thing to some extent, at least uh, f- for a number of species for which we can do such things. And so the point of uh, Ehrlich is that If you want to be a bit cynical about it, I mean, we won't have time, obviously, to discuss all the indicators, but basically, he he looked at everything that seemed to be going wrong in the Mm -hmm. early 1990s, and what we document in the piece is that actually, even if he, well, Simon, again, was extremely generous, let him Ehrlich choose whatever minerals he wanted to look at, whatever time period he wanted to look at. Ehrlich's counteroffer was to say, no, I choose the indicator, I choose the time period, and I choose things that are obviously relevant, but I know which direction the indicators are going. Again, the amount of cropland per capita, for example. And what we do in our piece is to, well, okay, let's look at what would have happened because Simon turned the bed down. Nobody ever sort of uh, tried to come up with a final result for this. So let's look what would have happened during the time period that Ehrlich was interested in, which was the, uh, basically from the mid-1990s to the mid 2000s and then, because that occurred a while ago, let's extend it another 10 years. And it so happens that even though Ehrlich chose all the indicators, basically stacked the deck in his favor, he was nevertheless proven wrong on a number of things. And what's interesting is that if this is really the best he could do, how much does he believe his own you know, end-of-the-world scenarios <laughs> or uh, catastrophe? Mm-hmm. When the population bomb came out in '68, it was like, well... Uh, any effort to help humanity is pointless. In the next 10 years, billions <laughs> of people will die. And by 1980s, uh, even the UK will not exist or what have you. And so by the mid-1990s, he's down to coming up with, honestly, indicators whose relevance is more than dubious. And even <laughs> then, he lost on a few of those. Like, for example, there might uh, there is... Uh, my memory is failing me here. It's either there is actually more, I think, more wheat grown or more rice per capita. Yes, yes, but then even but some anyway. interesting ones. So one of the things that we did in the piece is we we took it at face value and we capped it at 2004. And in that case, there were a couple of indicators that really could not be resolved. Uh, they were so poorly worded, and it was impossible to find a proxy that would that would work for them. So we said, yeah, those those two are. I think there were two that couldn't be resolved. There were a couple that um, Simon won. Maybe we can fast forward to the table so we can look at it. But there's an interesting one, for example, AIDS. So he's uh, so uh, Ehrlich and Schneider said that more more people would die of AIDS in two, two, 2000, pardon me, 2004 than in 1994. The truth is, yes, more people did. But why? Because the epidemic 
um, was uh, largely in Africa and it was touching a lot of heterosexual people who were simply catching um, a, the virus from uh, multiple sexual partners. So that it had nothing to do with, with uh, uh, what we saw in, in North America as, let's say, an, an epidemic that was uh, uh, more centered on, on specific uh, groups. Mm. Uh, it was it was just it was broad based infection throughout Africa, and, and it was spreading fairly quickly because population was growing fairly quickly in Africa. However, I think it was two or three years after two thousand and four, the graph inflected down. So uh, by the time we get to today, or in fact we we had uh, data from twenty nineteen, and then we even were able to get a, a data point from twenty twenty. When you look at AIDS mortality now. Now, and that includes Africa. It's way below 1994, right? So that's another thing we did in the piece. We took a snapshot at 2004, and then we took a snapshot uh, right now, right? So how are these trends actually developing with time? And we see that the more time we give to every one of these trends, the more early and Schneider are wrong. And that's really one of the biggest uh, points that we were making in our piece the longer even these fairly um, meaningless and poorly chosen indicators are just left out there for the world to resolve, um, let's say, its, its issues and to keep on living and for people to keep on making choices, especially in the developing places, the more Simon is right and the less Ehrlich and Schneider are right. So the pessimists are wrong and they're wrong in the long run. So basically, we're not a plague of locusts, but we talk a lot, so perhaps, perhaps you want to interrupt us at this point. Well, I think it is interesting that um, th there is so much of like this unappreciation, I think maybe you were saying, Pierre, that um, for, for humanity, for what we are, what we're capable of, and our ingenuity, and things we've overcome, whether we're even like conscious of it or not, it's just what mm -hmm. we've been free to do, it's what kind of makes sense. And if you're given the right incentives or the incentive structure to do so, we, we have to become efficient. If resources are scarce, we, we have to only use like what's available. And so that's why like, you know, pessimists and maybe central planners and these big bureaucratic uh, bug loving agencies that hate humans, you know, <laughs> they all just <clears throat> sort of um, have these downward spiral opinions. And but, but that's the thing. And I mean, uh, Joanna experienced it first aid, but uh, firsthand, but really what matters then is the issue of freedom, because you can argue that, well, Ehrlich was right in one context, in communist economies. Mm. And so, yeah. mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. first had experience in this. You know, there was this old joke, again, I'm dating myself, but we used to see the weather tends to be bad in communist economies because their harvest would always fail and something <laughs> bad would always happen. And ultimately, obviously, it had nothing to do with the weather. It was uh, the institutions and uh, what really mattered. But yeah, another issue that you sort of alluded to, and it's one of my current projects, what's interesting is that the political left used to be much more pro-human uh, than it mm -hmm, is today. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, if you begin uh, with, let's say, the early uh, 19th century, uh, well, again, I don't know if uh, you kids uh, studied the utopian socialists or what have you, to the early Marxists, to the middle of the 20th century, uh, the left was all about transforming nature, the mastery of nature to uh, improve the lot of humanity. And then they lost the plot in the 1970s, and I think the answer is obvious, the left could never deliver. Central planning could never deliver uh, in French. Mm -hmm.
Tu sais, les lendemains qui chantent, I don't know what they told you at Poland, you know, better, better tomorrows or to central yeah, yeah, planning. Yeah. And uh, at the same time, yeah, the Ehrlich and the, the down with people crowd came along and mm. uh, most of the left decided to join the cool kids uh, by the 1970s, early 1980s. But, but that's something that is completely forgotten today. Uh, this belief in human creativity of, uh, you know, transforming nature for the betterment of mankind used to be completely dominant on the left and even more yeah. than on the right, I would argue. But yeah. Uh, right. yeah, so instead of saying, well, we were wrong, markets can actually deliver better outcomes now, they just veered into this down with people uh, yeah. mindset. Yeah, but there's even something more exciting that Pierre is looking at right now. So he's really looking at the history <laughs> of environmental thought. And um, in particular, he's looking at where, where did these ideas about uh, a pessimist conservationism come from and he's really able to track these down to uh not so much the left where we see them dominating right now uh, he's tracked them uh, to the traditional right right so what's really happened is a little bit of a flip of polarities with these ideas why don't you explain this because you've been sitting in this um or am i <laughs> you're looking you're giving me this look of oh, no go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> no and, and that's the thing about that again if, if if i go in too many directions stop me but Yeah, what I find fascinating and a topic that is not really addressed by intellectual historians is that, yeah, environmentalism really came, if you go back to the early 19th century, uh, to romanticism, to aristocrats who don't like the fact that the peasants are moving to the city and that suddenly the bourgeois are richer and more important than they are. And they say, oh, look at all the problems that come with cities. You're destroying our institutions. And you, you always have this sort of agrarian... Uh, counter movement, uh, especially among uh, Euro European conservatives who are not classical liberal. Uh, you see, at the time, you've got the classical liberals, you've got the socialists, you've got the conservatives, and the classical liberal, not a, they're sort of divided on these issues. I've realized to my dismay that a, a lot more of them were Malthusians than I would have mm -hmm. hoped. But the good ones, like Bastien, others are anti Malthusians, so at least Bastien mm -hmm. is good, but a lot of his buddies and friends at the time are not. <laughs> but really, uh, whereas the left is really mostly anti-Maltus, not all of it, but most of it, and these sorts of ideas, organic food, anti-science, uh, all of that really came originally from the political right. It was really a reactionary movement. And mm -hmm. then eventually, and a lot of it came out of Germany, and so... And autarky, local, local oh, well, food, yes. yeah, the, the big one these days. Autarky, yeah, one. yeah. Yes. and anti-trade, mm -hmm. living yes. within the limits mm -hmm. of what your uh, local environment can give you. Regional food baskets, that yes. phrase makes me allergic. Anyway, go on. Go on. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, it's just, yeah. But you see, but you can understand because uh, the people who owned the land at the time, the aristocrats were producing a lot of the food that, uh, you know, and suddenly, well, North America, uh, North America opens up, Argentina opens up, Australia opens up. What happened if you're a big landowner in Eastern Prussia and you really cannot grow wheat because, you know, you grow rye or whatever and people are not interested anymore, wheat is cheaper. Well, you promote this notion that local food is really what you should have and all these idea of bioregionalism comes along, come along. Uh, you, you should stop me if I, if I could. But <laughs> I'm not going to stop you. <laughs> the closest analog in terms of rhetoric that I found with the local food movement today. Oh, this is a good one. Yeah, it's really Nazi Germany. It's a, it's a long story, but you see, there is this 
Uh, I don't know how familiar you are with the local food movement, but in recent mm -hmm. years, what has been really popular is this notion that uh, local food should be culturally appropriate to people. You know, people <laughs> sort of evolve in symbiosis with their environment and they should mm -hmm. have the right, you know, in uh, Mexico to consume uh, their like, you know, 300 uh, native uh, corn species as opposed to that uh, yellow corn number two that come from the United States <laughs> or what have you. Well, if you look for a precedence of that, you can sort of go back to Germany in the 1930s and the Nazis telling you that the Aryan race evolved in symbiosis with its environment. So Aryans should eat dark bread. You know, mm -hmm. uh, the white bread is for a feet like the French. You know, mm -hmm. it's, uh, you know, they, you should eat, uh, you should uh, live and learn to live in symbiosis with your environment and then autarchy is the way to go. But at least the Nazis were more honest. If you look at their propaganda, they say, yeah, you won't have banana and you won't have chocolate, but you won't be dependent on people from the mm -hmm. outside world. Whereas today, my sense is that a local food activists don't want to give up on red wine and chocolate. They're <laughs> not as strong, they're not as consistent. But anyway, so yeah, that, I find it fascinating that there was this big ideological switcheroo in the 60s and 70s. And uh, yeah, not enough people have written about it. So uh, I don't know who will ever publish me. I hope that some mainstream history journal perhaps will be interested, but uh, academia is so ideological today. But anyway, I've got 10 years, so uh, yeah, I'm writing the story and we'll see where it gets published. <laughs> it's good that you've got ah. that um, freedom because that does sound interesting and maybe like not different than uh, like the sort of trend we've seen in other subjects. Like, you know, I think the more traditional anti-war stance in the America and in America was on the right it was you know a conservative yeah. thing and then people just assume that because the hippies were opposed to vietnam that it was a left thing but that and then mm -hmm. you know the anti-bush um fake anti-war left really like depressingly fake anti-war left honestly yeah. um you know where they went away in um the obama years and so i think like it I what you're what you're saying is just further proof of the point that it's not about necessarily like I think the political affiliation it's really like ideological and then probably maybe even more subtle than that like on a on a level of only you yourself kind of maybe know how much of a um, nihilist you might be. <laughs> <laughs> and um like those people seem to need central planning even the maybe more libertarian or thinking they're libertarian types jesse we know them um <laughs> it's like they're they're reliant on some like central planner and um so you well, know can i see can i see libertarians have disappointed me a lot during oh, COVID, yeah. oh yeah perhaps, perhaps, you might have discussed this already in the previous podcast but uh us too. I don't know. There were people who I thought I knew well, or uh, I don't know. I've come to realize how lucky I am with, uh, to be with Joanna because we really have one mind on those issues. But a lot of people that I used to, well, I thought I knew, uh, turned out to be. Well, I, I think know. I think the problem is, and I think Maddie, you you really you really uh, uh, you're spot on on the fact that it, it is also something more subtle because the political divisions are one thing, but I think what we're talking about is is intellectual elite, right? So mm -hmm. the problem is that um, whoever becomes the intellectual elite ends up yes, or wants to be yes. part of it exactly ends up ends up then taking upon them 
this certain mantle that we that we that used to be associated with again the old Tories. It there is a there is a piece that um, I like to think of as um, uh, so this. I don't know. If, should I go into that? Okay, so Pierre goes, he knows, he knows what's coming next. But um, when we talked uh, a few months ago, we were talking a little bit about my breakthrough piece, where I talk a fair bit about uh, the technocratic elites mm -hmm. and how the pessimism is mm -hmm. really part of, of their desire to, uh, to promote the, themselves and their vision of what they would like to impose, uh, partly because, of course, they'd like to stay in power, but partly because they do believe, and it, it's an honest belief on, on their part, that they know better, right? Yep. So central planning, uh, as long as they're the planners, right, and, yep. and everybody else is receiving uh, the instructions, makes perfect sense to them because they believe that they know what's best for everyone. And that's what we're seeing a lot of. So the old Tories were doing that. They're doing that as well, and it's uh, it's part of a syndrome. So Jane Jacobs, on on whom I'm I'm doing my uh, doctoral dissertation, um, wrote a fantastic book um, back in uh, oh was it was it late nineties or early two thousands? I'm so bad with dates. Systems are about the same. So <laughs> yes, well, kind of. Yeah, it's it's like you know when you're still thinking about the nineties, there was so much ferment, and the book was nowhere near as famous as uh, Death and Life of Great American Cities. That was 1961, so that was huge, huge, huge. Um, uh, it just came out in the huge influential and, and just groundbreaking uh, 60s. But uh, this was early 90s. Some people noticed, but very few people noticed what it was that she was talking about in that book. And what she really was talking about was the clash of dispositions. This is more than just um, you know, uh, political uh, stripes or political tribes and factions. She was talking about how it, from antiquity, for, for as long as you can track people's behaviors, uh, uh, the way that people make a living and essentially align themselves with others um, and the way that, that they make meaning in, of the world uh, falls into two camps. Um, one of them, uh, she, and she called these camp syndromes. So one of them she called the commercial syndrome. And these days we tend to shrug and just, whoa, you know, just almost recoil from commercial. But um, what commercial syndrome is all about is creativity. It's creativity, it's voluntary contracts, it's deciding to collaborate <laughs> for the sake of a task. It's all Breaking the things. With existing laws. Yes. Yes, exactly. So being having the flexibility, what it really is about is mental flexibility so that you can mm. choose um, to abide by whatever gets you to outcomes that are beneficial for you, for your, for your region, for your family, right? So you make choices and you make rational choices that, um, uh, that, that, are, that are outward and future oriented. Um, one of one of the ways that she describes this commercial syndrome is collaborate for the sake of the task. I love that because the task is is something um, something that you hope will have good outcomes for yourself for others. It really is at um, I think that's really the core um, of uh, what 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 business what free enterprise should be right free markets free enterprise. That's what it is. So it's it's quite beautiful. Um, so that's one camp and. All the artists, by the way, artists, innovators, artisans, they're all in the commercial syndrome. Um, free spirits, free uh, and flexible thinkers, they're in the commercial <laughs> syndrome. On the other hand, we've got the guardians. And uh, the guardians 
really typify what we see as our ruling elites right now. Public health officials, well, they want to run our lives. They're the guardians telling us when we can leave the house and whether or not we should have uh, a piece of uh, cloth or paper on our faces, right? Um, so once again, central planning is very much what the guardians want to do. They want to plan our lives. Um, and there's a good example I've actually noticed in the literature lately. Um, now that we're talking about uh, this abomination called stakeholder capitalism, which is pretty much just something that, again, the guardians want to run. Mm, yeah. Um, so yeah. what, what, is, what is the difference between environmental corporate social responsibility and what Pierre was describing earlier, which is um, having the freedom to choose what is actually better both for you from the point of view of your bottom line and not wasting resources, right? The outcomes um, in the ideal world might be similar. However, in the environmental corporate uh, responsibility uh, scenario, you have a mass of these disembodied stakeholders and Maddie, you use the key word, incentives. What's their incentive? There's no incentive for these people to, to do anything about this. And for the company, what's their incentive? Their incentive is to show somebody a piece of paper. So show another technocrat a piece of paper saying, oh, we did all this. What's the outcome? Who's got the incentive to even find out what the outcome is? Whereas in a business where you freely choose to do this, because you want to um, optimize how the business runs, both for yourself and for the environment, the incentive is clear and the outcomes are measurable, right? So we've got, again, um, the two, these two syndromes choosing very different paths. And as, as Jane Jacobs said herself in, this, in, this work systems of, uh, in her work, Systems of Survival, they're both important because there are moments when, for example, in war, when guardians are actually useful. It's good to have them come in and take charge for a little while. The problem is, they don't want to step down. So there is always this conflict. Humanity <clears throat> is always part of this ongoing um, battle between um, the commercial uh, syndrome folks, some, some people call them the traitors, and, and the raiders or the guardians, mm -hmm. right? I really like the word the guardians because it really shows that elite pull towards power, right? So that's, I think, um, Jacob's just nailed it. She, she completely understood it. She didn't, she didn't come up with it herself. She studied um, a lot of history. She went through all the, all the Greeks. She went through a lot of uh, the Roman writers. She essentially went through, um, and she also looked through works uh, um, translated into English, but coming from China or India. So she really tried to uh, go cross-culture as much as it was possible. So um, I like to come back to that. Whenever we try to describe what's going on and we think about what's next and why, what's the motivation of the elite, I like to go back to, uh, to, those, to those two because I think they, they, they give us some tools with which to analyze what's going on. But anyway, I think mm -hmm. Jacobs will, will uh, yeah. in the end, be important. But anyway, that's... Sorry, I got to ride my hobby horse here. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm just curious because it just seems like it would be in a, not in our best interest to think about ourselves as locusts and, you know, just, you know, eaters and you, what is it? Useless eaters. Yeah. And, uh, parasites, you know, parasites basically. Yes. And I mean, it just seems like most people probably don't want to think about themselves that way. Or the, we're but, the virus on the earth. Remember? Like that's also yes. something I've the heard. Virus, the cancer. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It, it just seems like people are embracing that idea though, wholeheartedly. Like they love the idea that 
where this cancer on society and we need to stop procreating. We need to conserve. Well, we have, yeah, we should not have children <laughs> because of global warming. Uh, right. yeah, if, I, if I may plug our book, because we do address uh, these topics in mm-hmm. more detail. But the short version of the story is that, or at least the way I read it, is that, yes, as I was, the left used to be very pro-human, uh, mm-hmm. but their policies never worked. Mm-hmm. And what you had in the post-World War II era was another powerful lobby that had something of an existential crisis, and that was the eugenicist movement. Mm-hmm. They used to have a huge amounts of money from various foundations. They were establishing universities. Uh, but then again, the Nazis sort of uh, pushed mm-hmm. the logic to its extreme, and there was a big recoil from that. And so what you see in the 1940s, uh, 50s, early 60s is that a lot of these people reinvented themselves as neo-Malthusian. Mm-hmm. And uh, there is a lot of literature at the time saying that, well, everybody thinks that DDT is this wonderful thing. No, it's terrible. You're just saving kids. You know, they're, instead of dying of malaria when they're young, they will die of starvation when they're older because of this population <laughs> explosion. We, they won't be able to feed themselves. You know, we go through, uh, that, uh, that's the Oxley that founded UNESCO, not Aldous, his brother Thomas, I think. I don't want to uh, say something. Henry, but anyway, yeah, but, yeah. but I like to, uh, he has this quote in the early 1950s. So we go to this tropical island in the Pacific, we spray DDT, the people no longer die of disease, but have we all done? No, because their future will be even worse. <laughs> and that's a lot of the thinking. And what's interesting is that, Today, this has been completely forgotten. We think that not the environmental movement really began with Rachel Carson, who warned us about pesticide in 62, and Ehrlich uh, warned us about the population bomb in 68. But that's really because these twos are more presentable. They were not eugenicists. Say what you will about Ehrlich, the way he differs from previous uh, population bombers, is that he's, he's not a racist. He's actually involved in the civil rights movement. Uh, he wants to have... Uh, <laughs> you know, black students eating at the same table as, as he does at the cafeteria, whatever school he's at at the time. Uh, Carson was a political. So there had been plenty of denunciations of DDT before, but it's always in the context of look at all these black, brown, and yellow people. They're multiplying. Things are going to get bad and worse. And uh, yeah, that, that's why we should not leave the colonies. I mean, that's uh, there was a lot of... Uh, when you revisit that literature from the late forties, wow. fifties, early sixties, it's uh, mm. it's really bad. And so they were conveniently forgotten. We only remember the more presentable characters, uh, Carson and Ehrlich. But uh, yeah, so by the late sixties, uh, the kids, the first third day comes along, and uh, yeah, the the left at first. It's funny when you read the the first Marxist to see. Uh, the environmental movement becoming popular in the late 60s, early 70s, they say, oh my God, this reactionary ideas, because you have a lot of people in the early 70s who remember the Hitler youth, who remember that the real environmentalists were actually the Nazis. And people <laughs> remember, but uh, then it's sort of conveniently forgotten. And uh, there's not much of an incentive if you're an environmental historian or a historian in environmental thought of environmental thought in academia to sort of go beyond the 60s, because we all know that the intelligent life on Earth really only appeared in the <laughs> 60s before that, you know, when to study, they're just dead white males anyway. Mm-hmm. Sorry. No, no, I wanted to remind you too, um, another person who's very widely studied, so Rachel Carson and, and Paul Ehrlich, definitely, but Garrett Hardin, for example. So we, we wrote uh, a couple of essays in, a, in a, a volume about 
Eleanor Ostrom. And uh, oh, one, one piece in, in, that, in that volume, we do talk about uh, really the anti-human and anti-population stance of Garrett Hardin. He's, he's widely studied uh, because of uh, the tragedy of the commons essay that oh, was okay. published in science, right? So, but uh, people yeah. think it's mm -hmm. about fisheries oh. or pollution. But no, it's really about population. Po population. Yeah. And, you know, think of all these brown people that will come to California. Mm -hmm. So he was oh, one no. of the leaders of mm -hmm. keeping the Mexicans out of California. And, you know, Arden, for crying out loud, he was a professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara. <laughs> he was more of a textbook writer than a researcher. But, you know, what a blessed life was it to be a professor in Santa Barbara when housing was affordable <laughs> you can, but they said he was basically yeah have my little paradise in california keep out you know what well, what was also in common what what he and uh, paul ehrlich had in common is that both of them um studied the part of biology that had nothing to do with humans and human culture right so they were they weren't let's say they weren't doctors they weren't uh human population biologists or geneticists or anything like that yeah. uh so we already uh, told you that yeah uh, ehrlich, algae, well yes so 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 <laughs> ehrlich was looking at insects hardened was studying algae and the way he oh started thinking of people multiplying is, look at these algae, they split every hour, they grow exponentially. Oh, wow. No. And in, in fact, why was he studying the algae? He was studying the algae back in, was, I think it was late 40s, like 48 or something like that for his, for his doctoral dissertation. He was looking at the algae as food for people and it just struck him, wait a minute, why should there be more people and why should I be coming up with these food substitutes that are high in protein and calcium? Let's just have fewer people. Why would I do good <laughs> for the world and people? Exactly. Because he hates people. Like, these people hate people yeah. and didn't get out enough. Like, And they don't want to do the work. <laughs> they were That's losers. Sounds like. <laughs> well, and they miss, yeah. they miss culture. What they miss about humanity is, as Pierre was saying earlier, the uniqueness of creating things right synthesizing things coming up with new things creating culture so these days we're also told that you know whales have culture elephants have culture possibly but so do people and the point is that if if we don't appreciate what culture brings uh, we're missing out entirely on the capability of people to get out of situations because they have culture, science, thought, and the ability to think ahead. So animals may have culture, they may be able to pass it uh, one from the other, but we don't see the evidence of them thinking ahead um, and mm -hmm. being able to, to plan, to, to let's say forecast, plan, work, work forward. And what, over and over again, it's the biologists who, think, who seem to be dropping the ball. Hmm. But then are they dropping the ball or do they really have the mindset? I think in my experience, mm -hmm. and I guess yours too, People self-select in terms of what they study, you know, a certain type of yeah. personality will end up in economics and other type will end up in landscape ecology. And Well, then we're back to, what, yes. we're, in, a, in a way, we're back to Jacobs. Yeah. They dropped the ball for humanity. I think to them, what they're doing is completely defensible. Yeah. So yeah, that's a, that's a good way of, of let's say, inter interrogating this concept, asking me, what is it that, that they're really doing? I think to them, they're doing what they have to be doing, but they betray humanity. Mm-hmm. And you see another piece that we, we don't have enough time, but it's like AOC, if you remember, was it two, three years ago when she says, well, the world is going to end up in 12 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. right. We're, we're 
coming up, yeah. you know. <laughs> and so every year around Earth Day, you've got libertarians who say, so go back to the 1960s, who say people were saying the things like that. We've gathered material, mm -hmm. we go back to the early 1800s. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We just never had the time to put it together, but uh, we use some of that material in our book. And yeah, so to get back to the 1940s, there is, for example, an author who says, we should not give foreign aid to Greece because they're rebuilding because the, the Greeks are spawning like fishes or something. So <laughs> if we give them money, it will just be wasted because they'll mm -hmm. have too many kids. And, you know, <laughs> Europe is going to collapse in 1953 anyway. So what's Great. the point? So, yeah, people don't realize that uh, the world is going to end in 12 years has been around. Well, probably since mm -hmm. the beginning mm -hmm. of time. But uh, yeah, flatten the curve in two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> So as far as the environment is concerned, though, you can go back to the first uh, romantics or the mm -hmm. first pushback against industrialization in the 19th century, saying that this was not sustainable. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, old news. Yeah. yeah, but I think the common theme seems to just be like an anti-human, misanthropic worldview. Yeah. Well, there's that. And at the same time, there is... Um, this expression that I think was used a little bit in the 1970s, and you tell me, Joanna, if you've seen it since then, uh, Marxists especially were characterizing uh, environmentalists as situational conservatives. Mm -hmm. And what they meant by that is that uh, environmentalists tend to be typically found among the, the most well-off people in any society. So obviously the upper middle class, the rich people, the people who already have the cabin by the lake or the people who don't worry mm -hmm. about uh, mm -hmm. basic needs. And uh, and that's my theory. Also, one of the big reasons for the switcheroo of the left is that mm -hmm. you have a lot less blue-collar, hard, hard hats type <laughs> than before yeah. and a lot more uh, mm -hmm. urban types, uh, activists mm -hmm. who now have the luxury to indulge in those things. Yeah, But yeah, I think a lot, it, it's kind of the curse of rich society to have more and more well-off people who then reflexively become environmentalists because they're already well-off and they cannot imagine <laughs> that having more people uh, after them could be sustainable. So I'm not saying that people voluntarily kick the ladder behind them, but that's, a, that's actually what they do in practice. I mean, I don't know. You mm -hmm. might want to... No, no, no. But that, that's ex exactly what's behind the Great Reset as well. If you look at what's happening, what, what the rhetoric of the Great Reset is, too. I mean, mm -hmm. as, uh, as a society, uh, our elites feel that we've reached a point at which it's going to be unsustainable for other societies to get to the point where we are, right? So they want to flip the switch on the Great Reset because oh, otherwise, what will happen, right? If everybody's as rich as we are, they don't realize that that's exactly what we've been doing for the last 200 years. Because mm -hmm. 200 years ago, uh, Great Britain and other parts of Europe and the uh, pockets in the United States were industrializing so rapidly that locally there were areas that were suffering environmentally. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. But it took a few decades for those areas to get better, to get richer, and for that wealth to spread, right? So that's, uh, they, they don't have the historical uh, background. They don't have the big picture. They don't realize that in many cases, um, let's say the, the localized environmental issues are temporary. And when they recede, they always leave the population much better off, better educated. And there is a, there is a um, demographic transition that happens, right? So rapid population growth always precedes the demographic transition um, that is facilitated by uh, more goods, more technology, 
um, more energy, especially the more energy, right? The energy that really drives this. So now they're, 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 they're worried about what will happen if everybody attains this level. Well, actually, everybody will go through that transition and um, there will be more areas that will be spared um, from further development. Uh, people will be living at the level at which we are. Um, and uh, um, yeah, I think it's that lack, it's the lack of historical awareness, the lack of imagination mm, um, yeah, and the short termism that really dictates that. Um, is, uh, do you want to add anything to that? I mean, would you would you would you uh, would you agree with me that no. a lot of this is behind all the great reset rhetoric? Yeah, that, that's. Uh, I, I think you're exactly on point here. And uh, another beef that I have with that is uh, the way economics has been taught for uh, well since yeah. the, mm-hmm. the sort of mm-hmm. heavy mathematization of the discipline in the late uh, 1940s again. Uh, so I'm an academic, I'm allowed to, I can justify being paid by taxpayers reading older stuff, but there was this, I think the reconstruction of economics in the middle of the 20th century came at the cost of eliminating a lot of what previous generation had understood about creativity yeah. and entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. And you mm-hmm. know, when all that you do are models where you allocate resource, when you come to deal with an issue like, well, growing population, resource availability, improving the environment. Uh, a lot of very smart people who become economists, well, again, they self-select, it's the more mathematically inclined that go in the field these days, obviously, but they just don't think the way previous generations would have thought, who celebrated, again, this notion of, well, uh, yeah, synthetic products are actually better than natural one. We can spare the surface of the earth. Uh, we combine things, therefore we can create more and look at the evidence. The more people there are in a context of in the context of free institutions, uh, the better off people become over time. I mean, I'm struck that how this was well understood at the turn, the late 19, early 20th yeah. century, and then it sort of disappeared as well. You know, classical liberalism or, or libertarianism. Uh, disappeared, was replaced by uh, the technocratic approach, which is always, yeah. you cannot mm-hmm. let the riffraff uh, do their own thing. But uh, yeah, no, unfortunately, there's just not been uh, much of an incentive to study the spontaneous order that emerges, that delivers both uh, more goods and a cleaner well, environment. I think if, if, if I may, though, I think that's because, and, and I think you're absolutely right, that it, it has to do with the perspective that the elites have. But the problem is uh, very few of us have had the experience of any sort of material privation. Uh, unless you choose to go camping, for example, and forego uh, electricity and forego, uh, let's say, having uh, plumbing available to you, you don't know how much energy it takes to keep warm at night. What sort of work does it take to uh, cook food uh, without, uh, you know, flipping a switch in the kitchen, um, you have no idea what is out there uh, that can damage you or get you when you're unprotected, right? So if you're in the house and the house is air conditioned, then you flip a switch and it's bright. Uh, nature seems beautiful to you because somebody else went out there and controlled it for you, right? So your mm-hmm. perspective then is from is from the vantage point of being surrounded by this, uh, let's say, 
fossil fuel or in, in, in carbon powered or let's say hydropowered electricity that keeps you protected, that keeps you insulated from the nature that then you are free to love. If you don't have that, if you're outside wow. and you're exposed to the elements, uh, you suddenly realize that nature is powerful. Yes, you want to I say was going to say, mm -hmm. yeah, but the, the stupid renewable energy policy will remind mm -hmm. people of that. I mean, when yeah, was Texas? Yeah, yeah, a few yeah. months ago? Not that long well, ago. Well, people so. were almost dying. In fact, some people probably did die because the mm -hmm. grid almost melted down, right? The, mm -hmm. Bad weather, very poor planning. Um, but caused, too many unreliable uh, wind power. Absolutely. That's, that's, what I'm, that's what I'm referring to by poor planning. So we don't have enough of that day I don't know today. If it's poor planning. I think a lot of people mm -hmm. are getting a lot of greens. Well, that pocket, too. So. That too. Well, let's say short termism once again, right? So there's, there's very much, very much that. But in the past, mm -hmm. people, people, couldn't, people thought they couldn't afford the kind of short-term thinking because they, rem they remembered calamity. I don't think we really, uh, most of us don't. Most of us do not remember calamities. And also we are not uh, taught to be self-reliant in a moment of calamity. We look up to the government to deliver whatever it is, yeah. um, salvation. And those lack of those two experiences, lack of the experience of truly being out in nature and realizing what it is that it takes to survive in it. That's the number one experience. Number two, having enough self-reliance to actually do it. So lack of those two. Yeah, but I would add also, uh, we've, we've seen the same thing mm -hmm. with COVID. I think yeah, one of the problems yeah, yeah. that we have right now is that nobody below 60s remember what polio was like yeah. or mm -hmm. what other real diseases was like. Mm -hmm. And so... Mm -hmm. And risk-taking, the ability yeah. to both take risks, take responsibility mm -hmm. for risks, and also evaluate risks is also God. Because yep. once again, we expect to be taken care of. Why? Why should that be the way society works? Risk has always been part of life. And in fact, if you risk nothing, you end up appreciating nothing. And I think this is where we are. So this is where we are with COVID. This is where we are mm. with so many other crises. We no longer we're no longer responsible for almost anything. We take so few decisions that we've forgotten how to take risks, how to evaluate risks, and when are risks actually worthwhile. Well, that's that, that in itself is almost like taking a huge risk. You know, putting all yeah, of your we understand that, yeah, into the hands of these people who have no—they don't care about you. Yeah. So no, and it and yeah, another problem as I see it again, looking at our workplace and uh, uh oh, what the heck? Uh, <laughs> oh, that's my tenure, I guess. But uh, a lot of us in academia have, uh, have uh, what some have called Zoom privilege. So uh, yeah, of course, uh, COVID has been good for a lot of. I mean, in our case, we've spent a lot less uh, money on commuting than before. But I want to believe that Joe and I, and I are aware that you know this cannot go on forever. Supply mm -hmm. chains will break at some yeah, point, yeah, and yeah. but you go on to uh, Zoom academic meetings, and yeah, I don't know how many of our colleagues are aware that there is a wider world out there that needs. Well, they, well, but the thing is, they're not aware, and we, we can't see this because they just want to stay in their living rooms in pajamas on and, Zoom forever. And, and look out into the scary world from their very protected homes. Uh, and it's the laptop class, and I didn't coin that. Um, somebody else did. But, you know, and so maybe I was very lucky that I was also technically a part of the laptop class, but I was also, as you guys I'm sure are and would be, we weren't the type that were demanding the world ended. Like, oh, no kidding. And 
And so a couple of like insights that I, I might have had from one of uh, one like the the depiction of the scared person, um, I'd say like weak, cowardly from the inside looking out at the untamed or what they might would be untamed for them, but somebody thankfully somebody else tamed that nature, right? They conquered that nature for them. So it kind of goes back to like we're using um Mr. Bug Guy, Ehrlich and um Ehrlich and um Mr. Algae Guy, uh Pardon? Yes. Yeah. And so like both of those yes, figures and, and they're just examples, but I think they're it's telling examples that like both of their areas of study and what they might have maybe identified with better than humanity were these prey populations or something that was not the dominant species. They were not the predaceous species, perhaps. Um, mm-hmm. unless, you know, like locusts eating plants and, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. vegans might get mad at that. So, um, <laughs> but it, 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 you know, it, it says something to me though, that that might've been somewhat more of their nature. And those types of people are thus more reliant on others to take care of them and demand it be done because they're not able to, or, or brave enough to realize that, they can do it, you know, or I don't know. They should at least think about it and take responsibility for something, right? But you're so right. There is, there is very much of, a, of an uh, almost enforcement of victim status, right? Oh, we're victims of this. We're victims of the pandemic. Yeah. We're victim of, victims of whatever. Why? We still, we, we should demand agency. We should want agency, right? We should want information. We should want to be able to choose, right? Instead of being told, you must, let's say, get two vaccines. Well, what if I have questions? What if, let's say, uh, what if one of us has had COVID and has natural immunity? Do I still need to uh, a shot? Well, now still- you need three, so. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, you see, there's, there's the thing. I think we should all demand to have a say in our future, right? So here's. Uh, here's here's this demand for agency, demand for participation, and for risk, right? I mean, I, I we we moved. That's that's a risk, right? We took a risk. We we did it during pandemic. Um, a lot of people are like, oh wow, you know, uh, aren't you afraid people will come into your house and um, you know do packing or do, do loading or do moving? It's like no, they're taking. If anything, they're taking a risk going into many houses and doing this. Uh, we're part of society. This is uh, this is what used to be just everyday life. And again, assessment of risks is so out of balance because these same people think nothing of jumping into the car and driving to a Starbucks, right? Where where do most collisions happen? Usually within ten minutes of home, right? Mm-hmm. They think nothing of driving ten or fifteen minutes to get a latte or something like that at a Starbucks. And yet, the risk of dying or being harmed in that car drive to, to, the, to the nearest mall is so much higher uh, than, let's say, getting, getting the virus and getting truly uh, ill from it, let's say long COVID or something worse, right? So it, again, there's, there's, uh, it's so much easier to be a victim and to assume that somebody else should be taking care of you then thinking through these choices, like, and, and mm-hmm. then so we see so many of our colleagues and we see so many other people reaching for um, easy prescriptions, whether it's environmentalism, whether it's some kind of a um, specific religion, whether it's really statism, right? It's 
a set of solutions. But again, what I find sad is that we're talking about English Canadians, the Canada. Tory heritage, but <laughs> I've got to believe ultimately what motivates our provincial politicians here are polling numbers. Yeah. And the fact that, I mean, we've got a few exceptions in this country, uh, in this country about politicians who really uh, stand against all of that. But I've got to believe that the fact that the vast majority do is that the polling numbers, unfortunately, mm -hmm. show that uh, we're in the minority and it's an even smaller minority than I thought. Yeah. Uh, Gotta love democracy. Yeah. Well, and you know, and it's not just young people either. I mean, Ka, uh, his father. Uh, yeah, let's just say I'm having a yeah, family conflict there. Well, he's 100% behind what the government's doing, and he's demanding that the government do more. And we're like, okay, well, it's not just, yeah. it's, it's uh, we, we can't even say it's uh, the Xers or the millennials. No, I mean, if, if anything, uh, young people want to get out of the house, and a lot of them do, right? It's sometimes, sometimes um, the other generations that somehow uh, missed out on this. But anyway... Uh, we've uh, we we've hit what an hour and a half. I have no idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, we're there. <laughs> yeah, so and uh, and um, you're probably tired, and one of you is convalescing, so it's from <laughs> from uh, from being. Oh, hey, here's a feline. Yeah, that's Howard. Howard Rourke. Oh, hi, Howard. Wow, what a beauty. How old is he? <laughs> he's uh, like uh, maybe four or so. Lovely. He's so active. Anyway, our 11-year-old was here with the cat again, but she left. I think we were just uh, too too passive for her liking sitting on the couch. Well, one anyway. last point I'd like to make. Yeah, yeah. for, sure, yeah, for sure. sure. I got distracted by the cat here. No. For you. <laughs> yeah. no, if there's one thing that studying the history environment of environmental thought or environment policy has taught me is that there is never any accountability, apparently. You can yeah. you can be wrong for half a, half a century and still be showered with awards and yep. research grants yeah. and students flocking to you. And even in your... Uh, uh, what do they say in English? Dotted or doting? Well, even in your old age, like yeah, so the young people still flock to you, yes. and uh, you know <laughs> you're, you're well, you're a sage or something. Even though you've been saying nonsense for decades, and at some point, it's it's all uh, you would think that people would say, well. They keep the, you know, this old image. Well, it's just we're falling down the building. We haven't hit the street just yet. But at some point, what does it take for you to uh, revise uh, your worldview or to question your premises? And uh, unfortunately, yeah, there's, uh, there's no feedback mechanism in university nope. that would reward people who were right and punish mm -hmm. people who were wrong. And I guess same will be true with COVID. And mm -hmm. uh, don't know mm -hmm. anything about Afghanistan, but I wonder how many generals will lose their job <laughs> over that. But, uh, Not yeah. a single one. <laughs> nope. Nope. <laughs> No, well, it's all related, and I, I, I guess even though that, like, I might have to pitch it back to you guys to maybe help us end on a um, positive note, because I think, like, overall, the message and your research and what you, what you two have been able to find and and curate and are still actively doing so is something positive, like something that we can be optimistic about that um, the pessimists are wrong. <laughs> In the context where we have economic freedom, remember the pessimists were actually right in Eastern Europe. Oh, yeah, you're right. So, uh, yeah, it's, mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't know. I used to be a bit more, you know, two or three years ago, I was like, yeah, yeah, you always have the UN or people who want to rule the world, but uh, people love their freedom too mm -hmm. much or, you know, we've got enough of a market economy going. 
Uh, these days, I don't know. Like I said, at the beginning of the pandemic, well, you've mentioned this already, so it's okay for me to see that. But, mm -hmm. but uh, Joanna was, we've mentioned before, grew up uh, behind the Iron Curtain and in one of the worst places, you know, Warsaw under martial law. Freaked out from the beginning, and unfortunately, she predicted almost everything that happened. And I was like, yeah. "I'm the naive French Canadian who was born in one of the freest society on earth, and nothing bad ever happened." And the thing about Canada <laughs> is that the winter is so hard; she takes a lot out of you. You don't really want to fight after that. We're not <laughs> French Canadians in theory are Latins, but we're not. We're not like real Latins because the weather is so bad; it takes so much out of us. I was like, "Yeah, no, it's just a fad. It will." We'll go over eventually people will get tired of netflix or what have you but i was wrong she was right so i don't know and uh the way i look at the future now yes uh, unfortunately the pessimists were right about eastern europe but but, so. but, but wait, wait if on a positive yeah, note really, really, no, yeah. there, is, there is except that just like with simon the positive note here is a long-term note now remember that in our articles the social science quarterly ones when we analyzed um the uh, every one of the points of the wager we find out that the longer we go in time the more decades we let things develop the more positive they look and i honestly believe this will happen too but the problem is that at the discourse that we have the political discourse uh the social discourse <laughs> a lot of it is broken a lot of it has been taken over by uh, our technocratic elites a lot of it is controlled by very few people so the long term positive view is that we will be able to influence people a bit more slowly a bit more gently through stories so what you're doing with the podcast is absolutely great because you're giving longer narratives and it's only through these narratives that we'll be able to get back why because narratives aren't just about ideas narratives um when you when you look at true working narratives are about protagonists that's us um living in a certain kind of a climate so that's usually called the theme of the narrative and trying to solve a vital problem so there's a plot plot are just events mm -hmm. the key thing that happens in the narrative that makes it impossible to put down that makes it vital and in the end that makes it something from which we learn is the fact that in the narrative the protagonists solve a problem it's an existential problem and how they solve it and how they grow through it and what they get out of that experience is what grips people. That's what we have to do. Our job is to tell these stories. We have to tell vital existential stories about freedom and what freedom means and what you can do <clears throat> with freedom versus what you can do without. So that's our job and our positive note is to know that every story matters. I love it. It's very empowering too, you know, like, so it's, it's like something that nobody should shy away from because it's just so awesome. And it reminds us how important each and every one of us is. And um, thank you. We have I, the power. That's it. We have the power. It'll just take longer. It's not going to happen next year. But we'll have the time. Unfortunately, <laughs> with the Green New Deal, there'll be yeah. a lot of sitting around fireplaces and <laughs> Well, that's how we start a game. No, that's very true. And um, I always get this wrong because it doesn't make exactly like logical sense to me. But um, is it us? Like people like us, we have kind of like a low time preference. So like 
things don't need to happen immediately. Like we understand and can see to the future and that's what we work towards. And that's yeah. exactly what you're saying. And, um, you know, and, and the opposite is seen in somebody like Ehrlich who, um, you know, thinks in the short term, has a high time preference. Um, Keynesians, like yeah. people who are yeah. economically illiterate or, you know, pick a subject. <laughs> so, um, so, no, I do think like even though we are in absolutely crazy trying times and each day it's like what new thing are they throwing at us to make people like us more miserable because we can kind of see through it. Um, and we feel more and more like the minority every day. And we are, we know it, but, um, you know, we're not alone. So we share the stories, we share each other's work, we find new friends and, um, you know, we talk to each other from different points in the planet. Exactly. That's it. Yeah. Well, so is there anything specific you two wanted to plug? Um, I think I probably want to get some links from you, uh, afterwards. Yeah, we'll send you the links, though. We are both working on different projects. Hopefully, we will uh, get to revise our book uh, three or four yeah. years down the road. But the Harden thing, if you're interested in Garrett Harden and, uh, and that whole thing about uh, <laughs> what, what, was, what was behind um, the tragedy of the commons, that's freely available. So we can send you a link to that essay. Yeah. And then there is, in the same book, there is an essay that's very much about the themes of um, uh, what would you say? Well, how fossil fuels have really enabled uh, this long range trading without uh, the, the today's, um, I guess, uh, corporate governance and, and, and all that crap that really gets in the way. So both of those pieces are freely available. Those are great because the social science quarterly pieces are behind the paywall. They mm -hmm. were um, academically published. So it's going to be very difficult for listeners to get to. But what do you think? We'll send the links to those yes, two sure. since we kind of introduced them a little yeah. bit. And we'll also send the link to our 2018 book. Um, and we also make an effort mm -hmm. to uh, publish columns and mm -hmm. uh, short pieces that are uh, again freely available. Yeah, yeah. send so, links to those too. We have a couple of them floating not around. Not that our esteemed ones, colleagues yeah. will give mm -hmm. us any credit for that, but we think it's important <laughs> to talk to a broader audience. So. <laughs> yeah. Our careers would have been so much brighter if we were only willing to talk to a hundred people and uh, not raise mm -hmm. any issues that will upset people in the English department. <laughs> 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 But uh, yeah, no, we'll send you, we both maintain fairly detailed website and we do our best to publish things uh, to reach a broader audience, and, uh, mm -hmm. many pieces that are freely available. So, yeah. Perfect. And then um, everybody listening at this point, you've been with us probably for a lot of this wild ride, but um, you can best reach us on Instagram or on Twitter. Um, we have Facebook. They haven't kicked us off yet. Um, Jesse gets some Twitter warnings on occasion. Um, they usually like to. Well, maybe this episode will do it. So. Yeah. I don't know. This, <laughs> well, no, 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 no. this no. is this is you, not you the most controversial. <laughs> no. Nope. Fantastic. The Instagram. You know, there are days when I when I just look forward to seeing your Instagram. Keeps <laughs> me alive. I just I laugh out loud so many times. I mean, it's laughter through tears. But yeah, keep doing it. But again, it's stories, right? And, yep. and this is. It, it beautifully illustrates um, what's what's going on and why it's so important to to realize and resist. So yeah, the Instagram is golden. <laughs> Thank you for that for that review <laughs> and that um, accolades, I guess. So. Um yeah, well, I, again, thank you both for joining, um, especially because I know so much, you know, is going on at home uh, with the new move and uh, sort of getting ready to go back to school. Um, 
definitely keep in touch. We'll do so with you guys. Um, good luck with everything. And thanks again for all the work and the, uh, the stories. Well, thanks yes. for having us. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure. And yeah, uh, keep in touch. When we publish something else, we'll do this again. Yes. Very cool. All right. Thanks again, everybody. Um, what's our saying, Jesse? It's been so long. <laughs> uh keep it sane keep it peaceful and keep it voluntary that's it <laughs> <laughs>